Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Aquadox, the podcast that keeps you up to date on all things aquatic medicine. I'm your host, Michelle Greenfield. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Laura Mai Collado, Senior Lecturer at the University of Vermont and Research Associate at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in Panama, studying the evolution of marine mammal acoustic communication. Hi, Laura. Thanks for being on Aquadox today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So we're going to talk about dolphin acoustics, which I love. But before we get into that, can you just give a brief overview of how you got to where you are today? Like many scientists, you know, curiosity is what kind of drives you. So since I was a kid, I always kind of like to explore and ask questions. I was lucky enough to grow up in a very rural area. And so that kind of sparked my curiosity, especially when it was about sound, because living in the rainforest, is very loud. There's all these kind of sounds. So I was always asking questions about where these sounds coming from, who's producing this. Today, I don't hear this. And that kind of stood up in my head, you know, and then when I went into biology and trying to find a place where you can grow as a scientist and uh, get a job, I had the opportunity to see dolphins for the first time. And then it clicked, right? This is something that, you know, kind of had my two passions, the sound part, uh, which is used a lot by these animals, and then being able to be in the ocean, which is something that I always love. It's amazing. I can't tell you how many people have mentioned that moment where they saw that animal, whether it was a dolphin or a sea lion or a fish for the first time. And you're like, this is it. This is my future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and these are fascinating animals. I mean, uh, the moment I heard all these sounds from my boat, I wasn't even in the water. You know, you begin to question, you know, what are they saying? What does all this noise mean, right? And so that's how I kind of get into this field. Amazing. And we're going to talk about your research with acoustics. But maybe before we go there, we should just give our listeners a brief overview of how do dolphins hear? Well, what is really cool about dolphins is that they do not have the external ears as we do, right? So their ear canals are in fact plugged with wax, so they are not really functional. And so basically they hear with their lower jaw, so they have these kind of fats in their posterior parts of the lower jaw that channel the sound into their inner ear. So you can say that they can hear with their jaws or their snout. It's crazy. Now, how does that hearing then differ from echolocation? Because I'm sure a lot of people listening have probably heard that term with respect to dolphins or bats, but might not understand the mechanics of it. Yes. So what happens is that in dolphins, they have this structure, right? That's what makes their their head kind of bulky. And this structure is called the melon, which has fats that are very similar to those that you their lower jaw. And the melon has the function to project and amplify the echolocation signals that are produced, particularly in a structure called the phony lips. So that's sound production. So the same area where these echolocation sounds are produced is where you have other sounds that are used in communication. So depending on the species, they will have different hearing ranges and different species use different types of pulses that you can quantify in terms of the beam of the sound and the, the frequency. And in and, and that case, it's very similar to, to that of bats. And they even have the same faces as they approach their prey. So they have, you know, these clicks or pulses that are producing as they approach their, their prey. They're, they get very close to each other. But echolocation is just the, the emission of sound and then listening to the echoes 
when they return and then extracting information about the distance and in some cases even you know the size of the prey and bats and dolphins evolve this unique you know ability to use sound to find prey and navigate and their corresponding dark environments independently and they do share some similarities but the main difference is where they are producing these sounds. So the characteristics of air and water is what basically defines how far they can hear and how they interact with their prey. And it's pretty far that they can send these sound waves out and get it back, right? Yeah, so depending, again, on the species and uh, the characteristics of the being and the pulses, some of them can detect over, you know, tens of hundreds of meters, I will say. One of my favorite things when I was interning at Dolphins Plus down in the Keys and I was giving educational chats to folks who were there to swim with the dolphins and I would look at the little kids and I would say, they can detect a penny from three football fields away. And the kids' eyes would get so wide at that point. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. Very different to bats, right? Bats can only detect two, four meters depending on the species. And their habitat is a little bit more complex, right? They have to deal with all these background leaves and trees and all that that can impact how far they can perceive their prey. But dolphins live in an open space. And so that gives them an advantage. And, and also their sound waves are longer, right? Underwater sound travels faster than it does in air. So that kind of allows them to hear prey at much longer distances than bats. Amazing. Well, now we know how dolphins can hear. Let's talk a little bit more about your research. So you study in Bocas del Toro in Panama, and you're monitoring the acoustics of the dolphin population there. Yeah. So at the beginning of the project, 17 years ago, I started just recording from the boat. But we realized that we were missing a lot of their acoustic communication because, you know, these animals are active 24 hours a day. I mean, they spend very little time sleeping. And so we later added to our efforts underwater recorders that are called sound traps. And these are very practical for researchers like myself that work in small boats and really not isolated, but kind of far away areas where you can't really travel with a lot of equipment. So they're very small. So we deploy them in different locations in the archipelago and we leave them there for, you know, depending on the question for days to several months. And when we have multiple of these recorders, it kind of gives a sense of the changes in the acoustic space in which these animals live, which consists of many sound sources, wind, boats, fish, sand moving, and the dolphins themselves. So we wanted to know how their signals that they use to communicate among them, the signature whistles, how they change over time, and if we could use these signals to have a sense of how they use different habitats in the archipelago. Because now we can hear them you know at all times so we we want to understand how dynamics and their soundscape influence when and how they communicate and we focus on whistles because they are very you know easy to analyze easy to identify in a recording and they play a really important role in their societies they produce two kinds of whistles so the signature whistle is called signature because it's unique to the individual so you can you can see it as name tags right 
So they produce these individually based sounds. And then they have the whistles that are we call variants, which are the ones that they use in all other occasions, right? And they are not necessarily unique to each individual. And so we cannot use these two types to get us a sense of where the animals are. And we also sometimes use the echolocation signals just to see, you know, are they feeding in this particular area? But the, the whistles, we use them to understand how human activities impact their behavior. And the archipelago and, you know, consists of these tiny islands, so people are moving in boats. Their taxis coming from the mainland, which have established routes, right? But uh, in Bocas, there's a place called the Dolphin Bay. And this place is known to have a small population of the dolphins, about 50 animals, and they're always there. It's mostly females with their babies, it's protected, and so they're always feeding. It's a great place, you know, for mothers and calves. And because they're always there, then they became the major attraction for tourism. And unfortunately, what happened is that over the years, without regulations of how many companies can be established and how many boats can be there, even when we have regulations on how the boat captains should behave, the increase in boats have changed completely the space in which these animals communicate. And not only masking, you know, making it difficult for them to hear each other, but also kind of generating stress because then you have all these boats, sometimes up to 40 boats within an hour following the same five animals. And that if you think about that from your human point of view, if you're followed for an hour by 40 cars, right, or motorcycles, and you are with your kids, you're going to get stressed, right? So we are trying to use sound to get us a sense of what is their kind of emotional state that they are in distress and without us necessarily researchers having to be there, right? So that we don't add to that. And that's what we have been using these recorders to kind of get us a sense of where they are and how they're responding to different kinds of boat activities. And can we use some of these characteristics of their whistles to tell us something about their distress, which is very important because, as you know, it's hard to get biopsies, right, from these animals. And when it comes to stress hormones, it's a very tricky thing to do, and especially to say, this is what is causing the stress. But under those circumstances, when the animals are chased and surrounded by multiple boats, you can imagine that they have to express and that's what we have been focusing on. Wow, it's an incredible project. So how do you look at all of this acoustic data you're gathering and then pinpoint a specific animal? Yes, what we use are programs that allows us to see the sound. So we transform the sound into a visual representation where we see the acoustic frequency of the signal over time. And so from that representation, we can measure how long the signal is, we can measure how low the frequency, how high it is, and then changes in the contours, so the shape of that sound. Now to distinguish the variance from the signature whistles, we use the Seagate method, which was established by researchers as an Andrew, in which you, when you have a recording and you have a whistle that is repeated within a specific period of time, multiple times, you can say, okay, this is a signature whistle as opposed to an isolated whistle. So that's the rule that we use. And, you know, ideally what we would like to do in the future is to have health 
assessments where we can capture the animals, get them measured, get, you know, all sorts of important data. And then when they are isolated, usually they're producing these contact calls, which signature whistles are basically contact calls. That's what they use to kind of contact each other. Mothers and calves use it a lot. And uh, members of a group, when they're separated, they use it a lot. So when they are in, in these settings, they tend to produce their signature whistles. So that, that would be the ideal way to do it, but it's very expensive and it's very tricky. So this SIGIT method gives us an alternative for those of us in Latin America, right? Researchers that do not have the resources gives us a good way to identify the signals just looking at the visualization of the sound. So a signature whistle is just a sound that I make, but that's distinctive to me? Right. So it's a sound that your friends will know is you and your friends can call you by your name. So they basically can imitate your signature whistle, your sound when they are contacting you. So that has been proposed to be a way in which they can greet each other. So there's some studies that have shown in wild populations that when groups get together in an area, they tend to produce a lot of these signature whistles and kind of saying, hi, how are you? So it is, it is a way to identify each other, but it's also a way in which they can greet each other, in which they can coordinate, in which they can call on each other. Yeah, so cool. Oh, I could go on all day. So now we understand that they can emit these individual signals, but what you're focusing more on is identifying stress levels. So how are you seeing that? Right. So what we did is that there's research from Sarasota, which is one of the longest study populations of bottlenose dolphins, and where they have found that during these health assessments, when they separate close allies or mothers and calves, they have seen an increase in the number of loops or modulation of a whistle, a signature whistle. So we tested that hypothesis in a publication that came out this year. So we wanted to see do we see a change in the modulation of these whistles when the animals are interacting with dolphins, watching boats in this kind of intense, aggressive way? And we compared that to another part of the population that are only exposed to transport boats. So these are the taxis that take people on daily basis from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. between the mainland and the, the main island. So dolphins know that it's a very clockwise schedule. So dolphins know that. But the boats, they just keep their, their route. They don't really make changes. If they're dolphins, they just don't stop. And what we found is that in that particular location, dolphins do make some adjustments to the frequency, but not the modulation. And the frequency changes are primarily kind of reflection of probably masking, depending on where they are with respect to the boats that are passing by. But in this dolphin bay, where the boats are primarily tour boats and they just go there to find and interact with the dolphins, we notice this really increase in the modulation. And so that what we did then is that we took a sample just within the bay and then we separated our interactions with our research boat and interactions with the tour boats. And we noticed the difference again. So the increase in modulation was happening primarily when they were surrounded by multiple tour boats. And what is really cool is that we got the opportunity during COVID-19 to continue our monitoring. So we had the special permit to go back, deploy our recorders in July, and then we came back in September and left our recorders for three months. 
And during all that time from March 2020 to November 2020, there were no boats, there were strict regulations and lockdowns. So you had people moving back and forth, but tourism was closed during those months in Bocas del Toro. And what we found, and this is uh, another publication that we're working on, is that during that time, the modulation in Dolphin Bay, it was same as the one in the place where we had the transport boat. And it's not that there were no boats during COVID lockdowns, it's just the type of boat. So in COVID lockdowns, only families moving around, going to the hospital, taxis coming to pick up families. There's no tours, there's no boats directly harassing or chasing the animals, and you can notice that. So we think that that could be a very important indicator of stress, but we also have collected biopsies and stress hormones. One of my graduate students is working on that. And what she is finding is that there is an increase in uh, cortisol levels during the season where there's high boat activity and when there's interactions with boat. Wow, those differences, that's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing because we also saw an incredible drop in noise levels in the presence of boats, particularly in Dolphin Bay where the tour activity is. And when we look at the overall data, we also see the year before COVID-19, we will only detect the dolphins primarily in the afternoons and at night in our recordings. It doesn't mean that they weren't there during daytime. But during COVID-19 time, almost every hour, there are dolphins present in these three months, which is something very different from before. And so now we're coming back summer, now that things are getting back to normal. And we're kind of concerned that because people have been in lockdown for so many months, they're going to come in huge number. So we want to be there to see if we detect that and that increase in modulation. And more importantly, how we use this information to help the ongoing conservation efforts to make sure that number of boats in the bay is regulated. And if we can find this pattern again, I think that will give us enough evidence that there is an impact, right? Uh, it's causing this stress and that could have cascading effects on the health of the population. And so we need to do something about that. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Great, we have this data. We're at the point where we can say that we are creating a negative impact on the natural behavior of these animals. But how do you go from that to regulation? Do you plan to present this data to the folks that are in charge in Panama? Like, what are the next steps? Yeah, so one of the things that I have learned, I mean, I'm from Costa Rica and doing all this research in Panama. So I'm seen as a foreigner. So I'm not just going to go there and tell them, you cannot do this. When you tell people, don't do this, then there's going to be a negative kind of interaction. So what we have done is to build a group of researchers that has primarily Panamanian scientists and Panamanian students. And so it's very different when you get your family, your mom or your sister, you know, to tell you, you know, you should consider this than having someone that, you know, is not from your family. And so what we have been doing is create, you know, workshops to the boat operators. We were present during COVID-19. So my students in Panama brought in food and supported a lot of families. We have created a plan that has the perspectives from the different communities, from the tourism industry and from the scientists. And so that has been presented to the government. And right now um, there are uh, ongoing efforts to create a type of marine protected area that would help us to regulate. You know, We have to acknowledge that these areas is poor, people depend on tourism. 
uh, but that at least with the regulations that come with a protected area, we can have less boats present at one time. And that can have a huge impact. I mean, just the fact that during COVID-19, the dolphins showed up into the bay and they were still present, even though there were boats there passing by. If a captain from a tour boat behaves more like a captain from a taxi boat, that has a huge change and impact on how these animals can, you know, live and, and share the same space with these peoples. And the International Whaling Commission has recognized this population as a conservation priority uh, based on these uh, issues with the dolphin watching industry. So I think we're getting to a point that we will be able to translate uh, all this hard work into something that is more tangible and that can protect these animals. And it has taken a long time, but conservation takes a very long time. You have to really be patient because you have to involve everyone. I couldn't have said it better. That was exactly it. Conservation and getting actual changes is so difficult. Right. And, and we have to acknowledge that there is not just one single solution. I mean, making sure that the regulations and behaviors of the boat captains while following the animals are followed. We also need to make sure that the changes that are made are realistic for the needs of the community. And that has to come with education. We go to schools and, you know, and have activities. And when I say we, it's primarily all my Panamanian students that do all this work because I want them to be the heroes of the story. I want them to be the ones that bring that change and that are recognized by their peers and their community. I love that. The way that you're able to interact with the local community and really put the emphasis on them. They're going to be the ones to make the changes and make the impact directly on their communities. But are you thinking about applying this similar technology to other potential threats in the area? Yeah, so we have a project called ONDAS, which in English means waves, and it comes from sound waves and ocean waves. And this is an initiative that started first in 2013, kind of exploring with the passive acoustic monitoring. So these recorders that you can put underwater for months. Because as I was telling you at the beginning, you know, we don't have that many resources in Latin America. And the passive acoustic technology can give you so much information without you having to be there in a boat and following the animals, that's very expensive. So I started kind of testing different recorders and testing, you know, what is the flow of information, how much it takes to analyze all these data, uh, how many trips we have to do to deploy and recover these recorders. And then in 2016, I got a grant from Conservation International in Costa Rica, and we deploy our first set of recorders in an island called Caño Island, which is a protected area in the South Pacific Costa Rica. And for that one, we were focusing on humpback whales, because this is an area that receives humpback whales during the breeding season that come from the southern hemisphere during the months of late June to mid-November from the Antarctica Peninsula. And then during this late November to maybe early April, you get humpback whales from the northern uh, hemisphere. So we wanted to kind of look at when is that exactly each of these stocks arrive? When is it that they leave? Is there any potential for temporal overlap? They use the same areas, but at different times. And we also wanted to kind of learn about how the song evolves and if we could find uh, 
similarities and connectivity with other populations throughout their migratory route. And so that became a, a very large collaboration with other scientists in South America. And we also deployed the recorders during COVID-19. So we also see an increase in the, in the detection rate of the humpback whales. And we also see some changes also in frequencies, like they're in lowering their frequency, that they have more acoustic space for them to kind of sing when they're less boats present. So that on the project, we also expanded it to Panama. So in Panama, we have been recording outside and inside protected areas in multiple places for about almost four years. And we also have a nice data set from during the COVID lockdown. So we're very eager to look at what all that means. We, we can see changes not just for individual species, but we can also look at changes overall in the acoustic community, right? Because fish also produce sound. So we're also looking into changes at the level of species and at the level of community and the level of the overall soundscape. It's a big project. It sounds exciting and it's very important. So we'll have to keep tabs and see how that goes. It's very exciting. We have over 2 million minutes of recordings right now. So for anyone else who is just curious, as I was, I just pulled out my calculator, 2 million minutes is approximately the equivalent of 20,000 hundred minute movies. So like hour and a half or so movies, a lot of movies of just looking at more or less graphs on a screen and trying to decipher the acoustic signals. Wow. Right. And because there's so so much data, we now are kind of looking into what are the ways in which you know, kind of make this process much more easier for us. We can't really see all those 2 million recordings. So my students are developing algorithms for specific species. Uh, we also kind of sample that uh, scape so we don't have to look at everything. So yeah, so we're, we're developing different strategies to kind of still have significant amount of data. And what is really important is that you have this long-term information, right? Because usually you have just a snapshot of what happens underwater when you're diving or even when you use a drone, right? It's just a short period of time, but the acoustic data gives you hours and hours and hours over, you know, long periods of time. And that we can see dynamics, how things changes over time. We can detect, for example, impact of a Nino versus La Nina or changes uh, like during the pandemic. This is what I find so fascinating about passive acoustic monitoring that give you this long-term information. Yeah, no, it's awesome where we're moving right now, especially with advances in technology and we can use machine learning or other things like that. You know, there's programs out there being developed to recognize the dorsal fins, which are like the dolphin's thumbprint, they're all unique. It's really cool to see it the collaborations that we're able to do with people outside our field, but are making a huge impact on efficiency and what we can learn. Right. And I will say that whenever students ask me, what do I need to do to become a marine mammologist or study whales? I often tell them, you have to be open to learn new technologies, figure things out, learn a little bit of electronics, a little bit of physics, a little bit of chemistry. You have to incorporate all these things. So when they're taking classes and as undergrad students that involve organic chemistry or physics, don't dismiss that right away because those are the fields that become really, really important later on for you to use that information. 
I mean, because I'm not a physicist or an acoustician. I'm using just tools from acoustics to study these animals. So a lot of my background is the biology of the animals. But because I love technology and I love to figure things out like programs and things like that, I'm able to incorporate all these things. So just keep in mind that all these tools that you're learning as an undergrad student will be important at some point uh, in your career. Well, that's some really, really great advice. Thank you. And before I let you go, I got to give a quick shout out to Kalia, who is one of your students and is a wonderful Aquadox listener. And she's the one who made this connection. So thank you. And thank you, Laura, for being on Aquadox. It has been so great to talk with you today. Thank you so much, Michelle, for having me. And thank you, Kalia, for making this happen. <laughs> and before we close out, since I'm having the time of my life here at Aquavet, and many of you listening are Aquavet alumni or hope to participate one day, here are some fun updates on what we're up to this summer at Aquavet. So my name's Josie. I'm a vet student at the University of Pennsylvania. This week at Aquavet, we dissected sea turtles and learned to give IM and sub-Q injections and also a couple different spots to draw blood from. I'm having a blast and I've made some really cool friends here and I hope to work with them again in the future. And as a special Aquadoc surprise, since this episode was all about acoustics, we have a couple sound clips for you. The first is of bottlenose dolphins in Bocas del Toro, Panama. This second sound clip is of toadfish in Bocas del Toro. And lastly, this third clip is of humpback whales in Bocas del Toro. Thanks again, Laura, for these amazing sound clips. And that's going to do it for this week's episode of Aquadox. I'd like to thank Dr. Laura Mai Cojado for being on the show this week, our sponsor, WAVMA as well as all of you, our wonderful listeners for tuning in. As always, check out our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to stay up to date on the latest Aquadox news. And if you've got an extra moment, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. I'm Michelle Greenfield. Stay healthy, stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time here on Aquadox.